Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 144, Penda and Oswiu, the Wind Wade. Members, this episode introduces King Penda's queen, Chinawiza. And she's really where things got going regarding the rise of mercy and women in politics. And so I thought this would be a good time to release the second of our two-part series on the women of Mercia. So update your feeds and check it out. So, when we last left off, things were going crazy in the north and in the Midlands. But the very last thing I mentioned was that Honorius, the Archbishop of Canterbury, had died. Well, his seat remained vacant for about six months until the 26th of March, 654, or maybe 655, when a new archbishop was ordained. Archbishop Deus did it. And since Deus means God in Latin, I can only assume that Deus did it means God did it. Okay, all joking aside, Deus did it almost does mean that God did it. His name actually translates to God has given. So what I'm getting at here is that his name was, you know, humble. Anyway, Archbishop Deus did it was fairly notable because he was the first Saxon Archbishop of Canterbury. That might surprise you given his name, but as was the custom with this period, you got a new name when you were ordained. Though, whether this was when he first entered religious life or when he became archbishop is a subject of debate. Whatever the case, they gave our Saxon friend the name of a pope that had died recently. Pope Deus did it. And chances are that our archbishop's name was originally Frithowina, or maybe Frithona, or Frith something. It's hard to say exactly because our source for his name was writing centuries after his death. But, issues with names aside, we're seeing that Christianity is taking such a hold upon the island that now Anglo-Saxons were advancing one of their own as the archbishop. That's quite a big change from how things were only 50 years earlier, when Augustine had died. And some scholars have argued that Deus did it is evidence of the involvement of Kent and Wessex upon the inner workings of the See of Canterbury. The theory goes that his ordination was the direct result of King Ericumbert of Kent and King Chenwall of Wessex's influence, and that it was, in essence, their direction that gave him the promotion. If true, that tells us quite a bit about the organization of the early English church and the power that Wessex and Kent held over the See of Canterbury. But whatever the case, we now have a Saxon Archbishop of Canterbury. And while we don't know a ton about his life, or even his actions while in office, we do know that he was beloved, because he was later treated as a saint by those he left behind. But it doesn't look like he was officially canonized, and frankly, his saintly reputation was probably localized to Kent, since, while the records of Canterbury from this period are sparse, it doesn't look like his power went very far, and probably didn't even stretch outside of Kent. Hell, he didn't seem to have much authority even over his neighbors, the West Saxons. So despite its early prominence, the limited projects undertaken by Canterbury at this time suggest that the power of the archbishopric was waning in this era of Northumbrian domination of the Christian sphere. And the fact of the matter is, as we've been talking about for the last few episodes, Irish Christianity was becoming rather popular, specifically the brand of the Columban monks of Iona. And it flowed from Iona to Bernicia, then to Deira, then to the Middle Angles and East Saxons, 
and by the end of the most recent episode, with the conversion of Penda's daughters and his son, we're seeing that it's spreading into Mercia as well. And also at around this same point in time, Agilbert, who was a Frankish member of the clergy who studied in Ireland, went on a mission in Wessex and became quite influential in the region, bringing with him, you guessed it, Irish Christianity. So yeah, Irish Christianity was really catching on, and as a consequence, the Sea of Canterbury seemed to be on a bit of a downswing at this point in time. But there's more to Kent than just the church. There were also political actors within the kingdom as well. I know it's been a while since we've spoken about the politics of Kent, largely due to the fact that Northumbria and Mercia have been taking all the oxygen out of the room, and with the exception of a few marriages, Kent has largely stayed above the fray of that northern Midland mess. And possibly because of their reduced influence, they weren't even that involved in the religious conflicts that were occasionally sparking up on the island. But things inside Kent weren't entirely placid. So, quick recap so you know what all the moving parts are here. Back in 640, King Aedwald died, and his son, Aircombert, took the throne of Kent. But interestingly, King Aircombert was the younger son of King Aedwald. The eldest son, Aermenred, was passed over, which probably didn't improve the relationship between the two brothers. Now, some scholars argue that since Kent has a history with joint rule of two kings, it's possible that Menred was serving as a sub-king under King Aricumbert. However, there isn't any record of such arrangement, so it is purely theory, and our details regarding the rule of Kent are pretty spotty during this period. But what we do know is that Menred, the elder of the brothers, was married to Oslava, and with her, he had at least four children, two of whom were sons. Ethelred and Ethelbert. And it is kind of nice that he decided to name Ethelbert after his grandfather, our friend King Ethelbert of Kent. Now, meanwhile, King Ericumbert was also married. In his case, he was married to Sakespeare, who was the daughter of the now-dead King Anna of East Anglia. Thanks for that, Penda. And they had at least four kids, too. And just like Menred and Oslava, they had two sons, Egbert and Hlothera as well as two daughters, and in their case, their daughters were destined to become saints, Ermenhild and Ergengoda. And expecting parents, I hope you're taking notes on some of these names. If you use one of these names, you'll have one of the toughest kids in school. Anyway, so the brothers were following fairly similar paths, with both of them having two sons and two daughters. And as a consequence, we're seeing that they had all the makings for dynastic troubles later on especially when you consider that Menred had a legitimate claim, and that once that generation had passed on, his sons could claim that the line of succession should go to them rather than to King Ericumbert's sons. Essentially, thanks to the older brother being passed over, both dynastic lines had a reasonable claim to the throne. The sons of Ericumbert could say, hey, our father was king, and therefore we have the best claim to the throne. And meanwhile, the sons of Menred could say, your father never should have been king in the first place, and we need to right this wrong by putting the rightful line back on the throne of Kent. And honestly, when it comes to succession politics, reasonable people could come down on either side of that conflict, which could result in an incredibly bloody civil war. And something similar to this dynastic issue is essentially what gave rise to the Wars of the Roses. So yeah, 
things are set up to go a little crazy down in Kent. We're going to have to keep an eye on that. And actually, while we're talking about all this family stuff, something else happened at around this point. Do you remember Hererik? He was the nephew of King Edwin of Northumbria, the one who was poisoned at the court of King Cheritich of the Almet. Well, before he died, he had a daughter. Her name was Hild. And while the main line of Deira was largely broken and eliminated following the murder of King Oswin, the female line was still out there, and it was also involved in politics. And as we've been talking about for the last month or so, abbeys were fast becoming the best way for noblewomen to get access to the halls of power. And so Hild, the daughter of Hereric, received an education from St. Aidan of Lindisfarne and became the abbess of Hartlepool. Now, as we talked about in the members' episodes, abbesses wielded a fair amount of power in their own right. So Hild was doing quite well for herself, and she wasn't done yet. She'll appear again in our story going forward. And actually, her sister had married into the East Anglian royal line. Though, to be fair, with all the intermarriages that were going on at around this point in Anglo-Saxon history, you know, those royal houses really should have all been considered the same ruling house at a certain point. But anyway, while the men of Deira were largely wiped out, the Deiran royal dynasty was still active in the north through the female line. And frankly, things between Northumbria and Mercia weren't done yet. And that really is where the real party is. So let's get back to Oswiu and Penda. As we touched upon last week, you really couldn't ask for two more different kings than Penda and Oswiu. Oswiu came from a long line of ruthless, authoritarian, and frankly dynastically bloodthirsty kings. And he lived up to his birthright. He had already killed at least one family member and it doesn't look like he had any desire to change his ways, since many scholars agree that it was his wife, Ainflaid, who was the driving force to build the religious state at the site where King Oswin was murdered, and also to install a member of Oswin's family, Tremahera, as the abbot of that particular abbey. But yeah, it was probably Ainflaid, not Oswiu, who saw that particular task done. Which tells us a couple things. First... Ainflaid was a shrewd political mind because she knew she needed to soothe the enraged Deirans. And second, by not being overly fussed about killing his own cousin, King Oswiu apparently wasn't much of a family man. And what about Penda? Well, he clearly didn't have any issues killing members of other people's families, but he seemed rather protective of his own. He went to war with a neighboring kingdom when his sister was spurned. And he definitely was a bit of a soft touch with his kids, even being rather relaxed and tolerant with their conversion. And as for expansion and authoritarian rule, Penta didn't seem overly interested in it. With only a few exceptions, he kept giving lands and kingdoms back after he won a battle or killed a king. It's easy to paint Penda as the villain in this, because he's the one who's killed a truckload of kings. But when you consider that Bede is our main source... And he was quite troubled by Penda's paganism, not to mention the fact that he killed at least two Northumbrian kings. It's not hard to see the spin that our Northumbrian monk might have put on the story. But the story of Penda is more complex than one of heroes and villains. And his main adversary wasn't exactly a pacifist either. And depending on how you feel about your own family, you might see Penda as the lesser of the evils. But hey, maybe you don't like your cousins. 
Now it's hard to say what was going on between 653 and 655, but it looks like the marriages between Penda and Oswiu's kids weren't having the intended effect, and that tensions were rising between the kingdoms. In fact, we're told that Egfrith, son of Oswiu, was being held as a hostage by Penda's wife, Chinawiza. So yeah, not only was Chinawiza powerful enough in her own right to be holding a hostage, and this foreshadows the prominence of noble women in Mercia going forward, but it makes you wonder exactly what was going on there that led to the hostage-taking. And a lot of that hinges on when Egfrith was given as a hostage. I mean, if Chinawiza was holding him while Penda was marching with his warbands, it makes it sound like this was from a prior conflict, and that, in the couple years of silence, there were further outbreaks of violence between Mercia and Northumbria, and that various accords had to be met. And don't forget that Penda killed Oswiu's brother, and then chopped up his body and displayed it on whale stings. So it isn't like Oswiu lacked reasons to want to start a fight. And if he did start a fight, it looks like it resulted in either the capture of Egfrith, or the offer of Egfrith as a guarantee of peace. Whatever the case, things were going downhill between the two kingdoms. And actually, things were just kind of stressful in general for Penda at this point. Because we're told in a 9th century poem that it was at this point that Kindathlan of Wales joined up with Morfail, and they struck the settlements at Caerluigoid, which some believe is Lichfield. And we're told that it was there that they fought with an Anglo-Saxon army, and were triumphant, and took enormous amounts of treasure. Now naturally, this is from a poetic source, and it was recorded over a hundred years later, so it isn't guaranteed to be 100% accurate. But if the story and the timing are correct, it does make you wonder what was going on there, because Kindathlan was a former ally of Penda. It was their alliance that brought down King Oswald of Northumbria. And Mercia generally had a long history of good relations with the Welsh. And yet here we're told in a praise poem about raids against the Anglo-Saxons that sound like they would have been within Mercian territory. What would have led to this schism, I wonder? And perhaps it was a need to reassert his dominance, or maybe it was a need to replenish his treasure reserves, or maybe King Oswiu was getting ideas after the Mercian loss to the Welsh. Whatever the case... With the lack of detail, it's hard to say exactly what happened in those intervening years, but something happened, and it led to another outbreak of conflict between Northumbria and Mercia. And Bede tells us that in 655, Oswiu was, quote, exposed to the cruel and intolerable invasions of Penda, end quote. So at the very least, we can be pretty sure that in 655, Penda had taken at least one more trip up to his northern neighbor to remind him why he needed to behave. However, when you hear these quotes from Bede, don't forget that he had a dog in this fight and was writing from a Northumbrian perspective, and also to please a Northumbrian audience. So painting Oswiu as a downtrodden and righteous warrior standing up against mercy and aggression would have been politically wise. Consequently, I don't think we can assume that we're getting an impartial view of what was going on here. Bede and his sources clearly are weaving a story that has Penda as the unjust aggressor. But that might not have been the case. It might have been, but it also might not. And something interesting here is that Penda wasn't alone. He brought with him 30 royal commanders. And they came from as far away as Gwyneth and included kings such as King Aethelhera of East Anglia, and King Aethelwald of Deira. That's right, 
King Oswiu's own nephew, the king of Deira, was on the side of King Penda of Mercia. That suggests to me a couple things. First, Penda had some clout with his neighbors, obviously. But second, whatever Oswiu was up to, it was motivating a multi-kingdom reaction. And that makes me think that he might have been looking to start up a Northumbrian hegemony again. And while that might have been pretty good for Northumbria, my guess is that the other kingdoms that experienced life under the northern boot weren't overly excited about that prospect. And from Oswiu's prior behavior, not to mention the way the battle lines were forming up, I can't help but wonder if the spark that started this conflict was King Oswiu attacking Deira again. Something like that could explain why his nephew, Aethelwald, was on the other side of this conflict. But whatever it was, King Penda gathered up his allies, and they marched. And from what Bede tells us, it sounds like King Oswiu kind of shit himself. We're told that, quote, compelled by his necessity, he promised to give him countless gifts and royal marks of honor, greater than can be believed, to purchase peace, end quote. And that all he wanted was for Penda to take his forces and march home. Bede tells us, however, that Penda was not impressed, and he didn't want to go home. And if that's true, that says something to me. This was a man who married his kids to Oswiu's kids. He had allowed Oswiu to hold the throne after the death of Oswald. And he let Oswiu keep the throne despite issues that were so great that Penda nearly burned Bamber to the ground. Penda was not a king who typically grabbed kingdoms. He would, at most, grab a slice of the kingdom and maybe a slice of your throat. But in Bede's account, here was Penda refusing any form of tribute. Instead, we're told that he, quote, had resolved to blot out and exterminate all of this nation, from the highest to the lowest, end quote. I don't know what King Oswiu did, but I have a hard time imagining that this came out of nowhere, and that King Penda was just being a homicidal maniac. If this did happen, it sounds to me like King Oswiu was once again overstepping his bounds and looking to stretch his power towards the south, and essentially, to rebel against Mercia. And for Penda, maybe this was just the last straw. So yeah, King Oswiu sent a tribute to King Penda, begging the Mercian king for peace. And Penda essentially said, You're kidding me, right? I didn't get all dressed up for nothing. And so Oswiu did what many people in foxholes have done throughout history. He turned to religion. We're told that he said, quote, If the pagan will not accept our gifts, let us offer them to him that will, the Lord our God. End quote. And B continues, quote, He then vowed that if he should win the victory, he would dedicate his daughter to the Lord in holy virginity and give twelve pieces of land whereon to build monasteries, end quote. And you might be wondering what his daughter thought about this. And the answer is, not much, because she was only a year old. Though I do note that Oswiu was quite happy to offer up his daughter to a life in a religious house, but he wasn't willing to put himself on the chopping block like that. He was desperate, yes, but apparently not so desperate to promise that he would live a life of celibacy and poverty. His daughter... Sure, why not? But him? <sighs> That's just crazy talk. And I guess he was just following the first rule of negotiation. 
offer only as much as your opponent is willing to take. No more. And so he might have just been trying to lowball the Almighty. And frankly, he might have wanted to hedge his bets a little better, because things did not look good. Bede says that Penda and his men outnumbered Oswiu and his forces 30 to 1, with the Bernicians being led by Oswiu and one of his sons, Alfrith, while his other son, Egfrith, was, how do I say this nicely, a guest at Queen Chinawiza's leisure. But keep in mind that this was just Bede's view of things, and so it's rather pro-Northumbria. And the Historia Brittonum doesn't entirely agree with his account of the events. The thing is, that while Bede says that Penda refused the tribute outright, sending it back and letting him know where he could shove it, the Historia says that Penda took the gifts and then distributed them amongst his men. And if the Historia is correct, this could account for how Queen Chinawiza ended up with Egfrith. He might have been offered as part of the tribute, rather than being held from a prior conflict. And if that's the case, the interpretation of Penda's march could be quite different. He might have been marching home having secured a win, rather than marching further in and refusing an honorable peace. And that certainly could account for the abandonment that Penda's army suffered according to the Historia. Yeah, apparently at some point, Penda's once mighty army started to splinter, with thanes, kings, and other war leaders taking their men and heading home. And that makes me think that the Historia might have an element of truth to it, because if the tribute was handed out, it's possible that his thanes and allied kings might have decided to call it a day and take the win. And so Penda might have started to march home, possibly satisfied with the victory, or maybe just realizing that his allies didn't want to continue the fight now that they had treasure to bring home, and that maybe you should just call it quits and come back later if you really wanted to finish the job. Now the sources generally agree on a few things. How small Oswiu's army was, the location of the fight, and the terrible weather. And reading between the lines, this sounds to me like an ambush. Penda was a skilled and experienced war leader, yet we're told that he had his army backed up against a flooding river. If he was prepared for battle and chasing down Oswiu, and then Oswiu turned around to fight, they would either be across a river, or it would be Oswiu who had his back to the river, not the other way around. Chasing down an enemy and finding yourself with your back to the river is something that only an unskilled commander would do. This doesn't sound like Penda. Rather, it sounds like he was marching home, and then he reached the river but was unable to ford it because of the days of heavy rainfall that left the river too deep to cross, and so he camped. And that Oswiu, having changed his mind seeing Penda's allies leaving him, decided to lay a trap. After all, an ambush would have given the northern king his best chance of victory. Penda's army was undefeated, and substantially larger than his, even after the desertions. But a surprise attack where the Mercians were blocked in could reduce their numerical advantage. Especially if Oswiu could catch him at a bend in the river, so that the Mercians wouldn't be able to use their numbers to envelop his smaller forces. Further, a night attack might heighten that advantage, as Penda's men wouldn't be dressed and prepared for battle, and certainly wouldn't have had the time to organize into a shield wall or some other form of defense. And what have we learned about King Oswiu that would indicate that he was interested in honorable combat? This was the sort of king who waited for his cousin to send away his war bands, and then sent an assassin in to kill him. 
Oswiu strikes me as an ends-justifies-the-means kind of guy. And an ambush, especially a night ambush, seems exactly like the sort of thing he'd do. And what little details were given, like the size of the forces and the rain, all seem to point to that sort of attack. Imagine the scene. The weather had been horrendous. Torrential rains had battered the region for days. Panda and his men were tired, far from home, and they were weighted down with whatever gifts they had retained, and their forces were already weakened. And as the war was now over, perhaps some of the war bands were already marching off independently, heading back to wherever they came from and abandoning their leader. And so Penda's once great army was shrinking, weary from the weather and the hard march, and thinking more of home than of the enemy. After all, the fight was over, and home was all that mattered now. And their march brought them to a river known as the Windwade. And while it might normally be able to be traversed, the rains had caused the river to swell and flood, blocking the Mercian army's path. There, with the Mercian army disorganized, blocked by a raging river, and distracted by the weather and their victory, King Oswiu and his Bernician army attacked. The unprepared Mercians were immediately in peril, and this was made worse by the fact that King Aethelwald of Deira held his forces in reserve. Henda might have looked like a doomed man, and King Aethelwald probably saw his uncle as having the upper hand and hoped to carry favor with the Bernician king, despite his early betrayal. But if that was the case, it was a lost cause, and he failed to recognize who and what his uncle was. And despite never engaging in battle, Aethelwald of Deira was never heard of again, and was almost certainly dethroned, or worse. But Aethelwald was correct in one thing. Penda was in dire straits. And before long, his ally, King Aethelhera of East Anglia, fell in battle. Penda's long experience in war and his veteran warbands could only do so much. And it wasn't long before the lines broke, and King Penda of Mercia was slain. After this, his men were quickly put to flight. However, they were boxed in by the river, and were told that as many drowned as died in battle. This was an utter slaughter, and King Oswiu was victorious. And then, Possibly remembering the treatment of his own brother, Oswald, King Oswiu cut off Penda's head. Mercia was broken. Northumbria was once again ascendant. But before we celebrate with Oswiu, Let's look at what was happening on our island. Thunor and Woden were losing favor in the east. Scarcely 50 years earlier, they had all but eliminated Christianity from Anglo-Saxon lands. But now things had changed. And kings, nobles, and peasants were setting aside the gods of their forefathers. The era of the warriors of God was drawing to a close. And now the last great pagan Anglo-Saxon king was dead in the field his head separated from his shoulders. But as we say goodbye, let's remember all that King Penda had accomplished. King Edwin of Northumbria, 
King Oswald of Northumbria, King Egric of East Anglia, King Sigivert of East Anglia, King Anna of East Anglia, Prince German of East Anglia, and countless unnamed thanes and warriors, all had fallen to Penda. Not bad for a lesser noble from District 9. I mean, Mercia. All right, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. And as always, just head over to thebritishhistorypodcast.com and have a poke around. There's a lot of stuff you can get involved in. There's Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, Pinterest, you name it. The forums are a lot of fun, so just go over there and check it out. All right, thanks for listening.